Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. He is the plaintiff here because he wants his name to be prominent. Um, He is, of course, running for Senate. Well, I guess the question always becomes whether or not the plaintiff has standing. If there is such a thing as reluctant judging, I think that's what happened here. Uh, Maybe sue the attorney general himself or his office to get him to stop. At the end of the day, right is right and wrong is wrong. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Today is our legal roundtable, and we had planned to discuss a long list of interesting legal disputes and constitutional questions. We'll still get to many of those, as many as we can. But once again, our hand has been forced by another high-profile lawsuit filed by Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt. Yesterday, he filed suit against the Columbia Public Schools. He hopes to use that lawsuit to take down mask mandates in public schools across the state. Can he do that? And if so, how? Well, joining us now to discuss that question and so much more is a panel of expert attorneys. This month, that includes Connie McFarlane Butler. She runs her own law firm of the same name in Florissant. So, Connie, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Sarah. And we're also joined this month by Jennifer Joyce. She was the St. Louis Circuit Attorney from 2001 to 2016. She's now a principal in the consulting firm Vera Causa Group, LLC. She works with prosecutors around the country in areas such as communications, leadership, and racial equity. So, Jennifer, welcome back. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, we're joined this month by Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former federal prosecutor, also a former circuit attorney, and she's now in private practice at Gorofsky Law. So, Nicole, welcome. Thanks for having me. So we're so glad you're all with us today. Uh, Eric Schmidt suing Columbia Public Schools. And the gist of his lawsuit seems to be that these mask mandates are arbitrary and capricious. Is that grounds enough to file a lawsuit? Jennifer, what's your take on this? Well, as I'm sure you've noticed, Sarah, you can file a lawsuit against anybody for anything. The question is whether you will prevail. And unfortunately, uh, the attorney general seems to have a history of filing a lot of lawsuits that really don't have any chance of prevailing, um, which kind of begs the question, why would he do that? And I, I've talked to some people who are very um, involved in this type of litigation for the state, and they believe that this is going to fail as well. Interesting. Yeah, if you notice, if you actually look at the lawsuit and if you um, look at some of the claims, they are a lot of the claims are presented what and a legal standard is called upon information and belief. And what that means is they don't actually know if it's true or not. They're just kind of uh, guessing. And so um, they were 
pleading that upon information and belief, the Columbia School District didn't take into account data or science or any of these things, but they don't actually know that that's true. And so this appears to be one of those Eric Schmidt specials where uh, he files it, he gets the publicity, he doesn't actually even call it up in terms of um, wanting to get it rolled on and then just waits. It doesn't call it up, like he could have filed something to fast track this and didn't? It, that's what it appears. And I, I, I took a look at the actual petition itself that was filed, and I would agree that certainly in the uh, opening statements of the, the petition, it appears to be just political posturing, if you read it carefully. Uh, but I think that, you know, if you look at count three of the petition, because it's a three-count uh, petition for declaratory relief, that in that third count, uh, he asked that the mass mandate be declared uh, unlawful uh, because he indicates that the, that the uh, state statute and constitution uh, provides that the Department of Health and Senior Services has the duty and responsibility of uh, 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 safeguarding public health and putting in place regulations. And, and statutes, so forth, that, that safeguard uh, the, the health of the community, and that the school district or school board does not have that authority. Uh, so there may be a little something to talk about there with respect to count three. Uh, otherwise, uh, I don't think that uh, that this will succeed. It's interesting, though. Like my kids' schools tell them, like what kind of T-shirts they're allowed to wear, whether they can wear a shirt with a collar or not. Could it be that this sort of regulatory loophole that he's found here that that would be enough to ban masks? Uh, well, I, I I don't I don't think so. Uh, I think in in this particular instance where it is a health provision. Uh, that, like I said, there may be some traction that this is something that should be mandated by the Department of Health and Senior Services. Uh, whether or not you wear a collared shirt or whether or not you can wear earrings to school and so forth, I think that that's a separate issue. You know, one of the weird things in this lawsuit, at least to me as a non-lawyer, is that he himself is the plaintiff. I'm used to seeing these lawsuits brought on behalf of like, here's this seven-year-old in the Columbia schools who doesn't want to wear the mask, or here's this parent who sees that their child would be harmed by this. I'm not seeing that in this case. Nicole, is that unusual? Yeah, I think that's a little odd. And I think, you know, that could be an issue in the case. The other thing that was a little odd uh, was that he called it a reverse class action, which I'm not exactly sure what that means. I've never heard that either. Right. And so um, I think he was, his thinking is that if he files this case against the uh, Columbia School District that maybe it'll have precedent for the rest of the schools across the state. He There was a section in the petition where he is actually asking for class certification, but if the argument is that this particular school board made an arbitrary and capricious decision, I don't see how you get class certification because then you would have to look at each individual school board to see how they made their decision. So it's a logical fallacy to me. So yes, a lot of unique um, political issues in this case. Yeah, and as the recovering politician in the group, I will say <laughs> it's a cynical view, but I think some would say that this is, he is the plaintiff here because he wants his name to be prominent. Um, he is, of course, running for Senate, and this probably plays very well with a group of voters that he's interested in courting. 
Is it almost also it makes things a little easier? He doesn't have to go find a seven-year-old who objects to this. He can just come in with like, politically, here's how I feel. I've got the right to do this. Connie, do you think it'll impact his chances of winning this lawsuit, the fact that there's not this little seven-year-old front and center? Well, I guess the question always becomes whether or not the plaintiff has standing uh, to file the lawsuit. And so that may be an issue uh, that arises because he is, in fact, the plaintiff. And it appears to be for, you know, name recognition uh, that uh, this is being used in this manner. Uh, but to kind of piggyback off of one of Nicole, uh, Nicole's point, uh, these reverse class action lawsuits, uh, they're not uh, they're not typical, but not completely unusual. Uh, uh, you do see plaintiffs uh, in particularly copyright infringement cases that are using this reverse class action mechanism to file suits against multiple defendants who are infringing upon their copyright. Uh, copyrights. So uh, it's uh, unusual that it's being used in this manner, but uh, it has been done before. It's a thing. <laughs> right. It's a new thing. A new shiny toy. That was absolutely news to me. I had never heard reverse class action before. I thought maybe they invented it. Connie, I appreciate that perspective <laughs> that in other parts of the law, people are using this. Absolutely. Hmm. So Missouri, we're leading the way. I got to say, though, I mean, I hear a lot of skepticism from this room, and I can't say I'm surprised by that after reading the petition myself. But last month on this legal roundtable, completely different panel, we talked about how Attorney General Eric Schmidt had previously sued over St. Louis County's mask mandate. And the panel at that time gave this pretty low odds of success. They said, you know, this is kind of an Eric Schmidt special, the same way that we're feeling today. Now, after that happened, the St. Louis County Council did go up against uh, County Executive Sam Page and voted against the mask mandate. But Eric Schmidt ended up being successful to date in this lawsuit. What did we miss when we looked at this last month? Well, I think you got to be careful how you define success here. Um, he has a preliminary injunction uh, from Judge Roboto, and I think it's it's notable that she did not throw out uh, the law, the, the mass mandate uh, that was issued by the public health authorities in St. Louis County. She merely paused the enforceability of that mandate, and there will be a subsequent hearing, and there'll be more discussion. Um, there's there's some real problems with the attorney general's position in this case, and um, you know there's problems with the statute. It's it's flawed. It's it's rather sloppily written, and there's uh, serious questions as to whether it gives the county council the authority to um, reverse. Um, an order that they themselves did not make. It was made by the public health people. Um, so I don't. I think we're in the you know third inning of this ball game. It's he has not. Uh, in fact, the judge has cautioned both sides not to declare victory here. Interesting. And um, I think Judge Roboto. It, it seems to be. I don't want to say leaning in the direction of maintaining the mandate, but she obviously is very open to that because she has not struck it, struck it down yet, and she's asked for more uh, information and a full hearing on it. Nicole? Yeah, I was going to just piggyback off of that and say if there is such a thing as reluctant judging, I think that's what happened here. I mean, you can read between the lines and see that the judge was really reluctant to even make this much of a decision, and the judge really 
encourage the parties to consider the uh, needs of the public and public health and try to get along here. It just didn't happen. And then the judge, I think, felt compelled to uh, look at this statute that, you know, doesn't really apply in the other Columbia school case. You were asking what was the difference. And so um, I think that's, you know, that's what happened in this case. But I do think it was a very reluctant decision by the judge. And I think either side will appeal, regardless of how she decides in in the final decision in this case. It's not going to be over at that. Then we'll probably be in the seventh inning of the ball game. So this is uh, we got to go all nine innings here. I'm actually going to go to the phone lines. We have a caller with an interesting legal question. Uh, John is calling from St. Louis. Uh, hi, John. You're on St. Louis on the air. Yes. Hello. Um, just a quick question for your guest. Uh, since the attorney general is supposed to be representing us, the people of Missouri, is there something that we, the people, can do? Uh, maybe sue the attorney general himself or his office to get him to stop? Because this all seems frivolous and really a waste of taxpayer money. And uh, John, thank I, it you seems for like that question. Um, I'm curious if any of our panelists, short of of voting him out of office, which is obviously like that is the thing, if people genuinely weren't on board for this agenda, that's what they could do. But is there any legal mechanism by which people could sue Eric Schmidt the way he seems to be suing over a lot of things that that might be popular here? Not that I know of. Sarah, I was going to say the same thing that you just said, which was vote. Yeah. Uh, Well, there's an action in quo warranto, but I'm not sure that that would apply in this circumstance. That's really where somebody's failing to carry out the responsibilities of their job. And I'm not sure that that fits here. Well, well, possibly, since he's fond of filing for declaratory and injunctive relief, then possibly <laughs> the, citizens, the citizens can file for an injunctive relief. I don't think that it's going to go very far, but maybe. ultimately it's about, you know, exercising your right to vote. We, maybe we can join with China <laughs> and sue him. There you go. Some novel legal theories coming out of today's legal roundtable. This is why we like to gather the, the best and the brightest legal minds. Um, I see a couple possibilities here. Uh, we're talking, of course, to our legal roundtable today. That is former St. Louis Circuit Attorney Jennifer Joyce. Uh, We're also joined by Attorney Nicole Gorofsky and Attorney Connie McFarland-Butler. We need to take a quick break. We have a lot to discuss when we come back. Uh, That includes a high-profile case where an attorney was ordered to jail for allegedly cursing out the judge. We'll also dig into problems at the St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. And now back to our legal roundtable. Today we're joined by Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former federal prosecutor. She's now in private practice at Gorofsky Law. We're also joined by former St. Louis Circuit Attorney Jennifer Joyce and Attorney Connie McFarland-Butler, who runs her own law firm of the same name in Florissant. Now, we've been talking a lot about Eric Schmidt today, but I'm going to keep talking about him briefly before we move on. He is front and center in the battle of local prosecutors' quest to overturn wrongful convictions. This goes 
goes back to the Lamar Johnson case. This was a St. Louis man who the circuit attorney's office said had been wrongfully sent to life in prison. The Missouri Supreme Court didn't look at the merits of the case, but they said regretfully that once appeals have been exhausted, local prosecutors in Missouri have no ability to ask for a new trial. That's even if they uncover evidence someone has been railroaded. Now, the legislature passed a bill to address that. It becomes law this Saturday, and it gives prosecutors new mechanisms but it still allows for a role for the state's attorney general. He could question witnesses. He could make arguments at these hearings. Legislators say they see his role as a backstop. Jennifer Joyce, you're a former circuit attorney. Do mm-hmm. you see the role of the attorney general as a backstop in this sort of case? Is that a good thing? I don't know if I would call it a backstop, but um, I'm not troubled by his role in this. I, I think the law is a good step in the right direction. Uh, the fact that prosecutors in Missouri can review for conviction integrity older cases and I did that when I was circuit attorney we reviewed like 1400 of these cases Um, but to then say there's nothing you can do about it if you uncover new evidence or if you have reason to believe that this person didn't commit the crime that they're convicted of I mean, that's just, that's been a a real struggle for prosecutors for years, myself included. And there's been many times when, um, you know, I've been very frustrated with that. Um, So I think this is a step in the right direction. I'm really not troubled by the AG's uh, involvement in it. I think, as the caller said before, he is the representative of the people of the state of Missouri. Um, We always need to remember that you know, there's all kinds of people involved in these convictions. There's the defendant who's convicted, but there's also victims, family members, and things of that nature. And a crime by its nature is an offense against the state as a whole. So I think it's it's important uh, that he's involved. And I don't see him being an obstacle toward getting to the truth here. So the way that this bill is written, it does give prosecutors that avenue that they needed. Yes, it does. It gives you uh, some kind of tool legally where you can cause that conviction to be brought back into court and you have subpoena power now to bring in witnesses and to have a motion for a new trial. Nicole? Yeah, I really like uh, former Supreme Court judges Judge Wolf's uh, quote on this where he says it, it gives the attorney general a lane to drive in. I think that's actually a really good way of putting it. And he says, but it's not a big as big of a lane as he's had in the past. And I think that's true so the attorney general gets his lane it's not um it's not the ultimate decision maker but it's you know a place to take a position what i think is going to be really interesting to see going forward is is the attorney general as they have in the past going to take the same position in every single one is the attorney general going to say in every single one going forward um, no, we oppose this. We, you know, and and if that happens, then the attorney general is going to lose credibility going forward. Take the same position in every single one. That remains to be seen. Yeah, the Missouri Independent had an interesting story about this. They pointed out that the AG's office has opposed every wrongful conviction petition for two decades. That's whether a Republican was in charge of the office, whether a Democrat was in charge of the office. It's a blanket policy of opposing any requests for relief in wrongful conviction cases. Connie, you think that's a problem? 
I absolutely believe that that is a problem. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we have folks in position who just take the position that uh, uh, we have to stand by the conviction regardless if it was obtained rightfully or wrongfully. At the end of the day, right is right and wrong is wrong. And I would hope that uh, our, uh, our, our prosecutors and folks in position of authority would look closely at the cases and examine whether or not these people were wrongfully convicted. And if so, stand on principle and say that a mistake was made here and that we need to release these individuals from prison because we've uh, denied them of their liberty for too long. Yeah, I can say that that's happening all over the country, and it would certainly happen in Missouri uh, a lot more now that this uh, law is going into effect. Well, that seems like some good news in a state that doesn't always have a ton of good news. Um, let's talk about, we've, we've been mentioning the St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office here because Kim Gardner did try to, to bring this Lamar Johnson case, reopen what she saw as a wrongful conviction. At the same time, her office has been really struggling lately. We discussed this last month on the Legal Roundtable. There have been a couple of additional incidents since then um, that have just really raised concerns. In one, her office brought year-old murder charges against a suspect. They also charged him with a more recent murder. Police say they brought her the older case last year. Her office declined to file charges. Now it looks like the suspect murdered again during that time period where he was free. Um, the same time, you know, the, the circuit attorney's office is asking for special prosecutors for some high-profile cases. At first they said this was a conflict of interest. Now they're acknowledging, no, they've just got a real backlog of cases. Seems like some concerning stuff going on here. Um, Jennifer, this used to be your office. Yeah. Yes, it has. It was my office. And I, I have to say, um, right off the bat, I want to say that I think, you know, Kim Gardner is a good person. She has uh, the heart of a public servant here. Um, but I must say that I think she's... Um, She's not being well served by her leadership in the office and her advisors. I mean, uh, that is a very tough job under the best of circumstances, and I think she's been um, hindered by the advice that she appears to be getting. Um, it, what I hear is that the office is having a tremendous crisis in terms of turnover. Uh, not uh, surely everybody I ever hired, and I've been out of there for four years now, is gone. But there is also almost another hundred percent turnover where people she hired are now gone, and on and on and on. And I have to say that prosecutors across the country. I mean, I have a, a client on a, one of the Hawaiian islands where they start their prosecutors at one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year, and you get to live on a Hawaiian island, and he's having trouble recruiting. You know, I almost quit and went there myself. But, yeah. <laughs> um, so needless to say, the circuit attorney's office is part of this trend, but it seems to be almost more than that. And what I think is it, it's uh, justice is a lot about dotting I's and crossing T's. And it's not glamorous, and you're not going to have it on an episode of Law & Order, you know, somebody reviewing files to make sure that they're properly, uh, the indictments are proper and stuff like that. But it takes management to run a prosecutor's office effectively, and particularly an office of that size, and that complexion of cases. If all they had in the city of St. Louis were traffic cases, then great. But we know that's not the case. They have lots of murders, lots of violent crime, and I, what, from what I see is that there is a breakdown in the management and the oversight 
of the day-to-day functions of that office. And that's a theme that I'm seeing bubbling up in a lot of different. So I don't necessarily lay that at the feet of Kim Gardner, but the people who she has in those spots appear to be struggling in their positions. Nicole, does this request for special prosecutors, just because they're, they've got a backlog, they don't have enough people to handle them, um, is this appropriate to say we need to bring in a special prosecutor, we don't have in-house people? It's not something I've seen before. I mean, if, I think at first, I think the, the language was there was a conflict, but then I think it changed to be, no, we just have a backlog. And so, no, it's not a conflict if you just have a backlog. And so, n- no, I think that's not appropriate. And I think, you know, it's just like uh, Jennifer Joyce just said, is that that's, that's code for mismanagement and not getting your cases worked and moving through the system, and that's a real problem. Connie, uh, defense attorneys are pushing back on this. They're saying not only is it inappropriate to get special prosecutors in this case, but they shouldn't be allowed to like choose who gets to be the special prosecutor. They're suggesting, I think, former prosecutors who worked in that office and are now in different counties. Uh, do you see any concern with that? I mean, they'd get to choose the prosecutor if it was somebody on their staff. Uh, I, I don't. I don't see the problem in in her office selecting the special prosecutor to handle the case. I mean, uh, she's got a team of prosecutors in her office, and I'm sure they have daily meetings and they give out assignments, and she chooses chooses who handles the cases within her office. Uh, I don't see that as being an issue. Uh, I mean, with respect to this case with the uh, uh, with the teen who uh, had previously uh, been under suspicion for com- uh, for committing two murders and then subsequently arrested for a third murder. Uh, At this point, it's not clear to me if the prosecutor's office had sufficient evidence a year ago in order to issue that indictment uh, for that teen. Uh, It may very well be that over the course of the last year that new evidence surfaced, and and at that point in time, that's when uh, the office issued the indictment for the two previous murders from the year before. So uh, I, I think that that needs to be taken into consideration in determining whether or not there's some type of mismanagement. That is really a good point, and their hands are tied as far as how much they can discuss about that because it is uh, not public information. Um, But I will say, um, under the laws in Missouri, they cannot have a special prosecutor unless they have a conflict. That is the basis for getting a special prosecutor. And whether they they pick it or whether the judge. Right. But again, I find that that's an example of her senior people not serving her well because the lawyer filed that request saying there was a conflict. Well, it's not a conflict. So that was basically something filed with the court that wasn't true. Um, that is uh, is very troubling and concerning, and I can't imagine that that uh, she is involved in these decisions. But um, it, it's just um, I I don't know um, that any prosecutor would just give a lawyer to her office. I'm sure they all want to help her around the state. But they're not going to just cut off one of their lawyers and send it there to work under the circuit attorney. They're going to say, I want the whole case, and then I'll be able to do what I see fit with it. And that requires a conflict. And so if you can only do this if you have a conflict, what is the solution if they're if they have a huge backlog, murders continue to be charged in the city of St. Louis? Are we going to have to see some of these these murder cases get dropped? I I think that they're going to have to work out something with the judges and the defense bar where they're going to have to slowly go through these murder cases. Um, I think that they need to figure out some kind of way to retain experienced people. 
the young lady who left, uh, who was out on maternity leave, who had a bunch of cases assigned to her, her caseload included death penalty cases, high profile, you know, top murder cases, and she had been with the office less than four years. In my, when I was running that office, that would have been a 15-year, 20-year prosecutor's caseload. The fact that she had that caseload at four years, and I understand she's an excellent attorney, but seasoning is seasoning. Uh, the fact that she had that caseload speaks to me that there's some instability in the turnover, and then I have a case, and I pass it to you, then you, then you, then you, and it becomes really difficult to move those cases quickly because people are moving around so fast in the office. So there's a lot of different issues, and that's why I say it comes down onto management. We're talking today to our legal roundtable. Today, that includes former St. Louis Circuit Attorney Jennifer Joyce, as well as Attorney Connie McFarland-Butler and Attorney Nicole Gorofsky. We need to take a quick break. Coming up next, we'll dig into the case of an attorney who cursed out a judge and uh, was told to go to jail. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. Today is our legal roundtable. We have so many interesting cases to discuss. We've been talking about mask mandates. We've been talking about problems at the circuit attorney's office. We have a whole lot more um, coming up here. And our panel today to help us do it includes Connie McFarland Butler. She runs her own law firm of the same name in Florissant. Uh, We're also joined by Nicole Gorofsky. She's a former prosecutor, now in private practice. And we're also joined by former St. Louis circuit attorney, Jennifer Joyce. She's now at Vera Causa, a consulting group. I want to turn to a case we discussed on air last month. This drew national headlines. Uh, Clayton attorney Eugene Farrenkrog Jr. uh, did the one thing, apparently, that all legal experts agree you should never, ever do. He allegedly cursed out a judge during a hearing, and the judge told him he needed to report to seven days in jail. Now, the journalist covering this apparent shocking breach of courtroom etiquette missed a key detail. It turns out Farrenkrog wasn't actually in the courtroom. He was connected to the judge via via WebEx, that's apparently something kind of like Zoom. After the hearing ended, Farrenkrog thought he disconnected, and then he uttered the expletive out of anger. And that's when he heard St. Louis County Circuit Court Judge John Borbonis ask, what did you say? Only then did he realize he was still connected to the judge and on the call. Now, Judge Borbonis ordered him to spend seven days in jail, but Farrenkrog hired a lawyer to push back. He said in light of the remote circumstances, this gave the judge discretion. He did not have to act in the moment. He could and should allow Farrenkrog to defend himself. Connie, this is such an interesting case. I feel like this is the perils of Zoom writ large. Do you agree with Farrenkrog's lawyer on this, that the judge didn't really have to send him right there for criminal contempt in light of the fact this was remote? Well, I mean, I think it's arguable. If you look at the state statute, Missouri Revised Statute 476.110, the court does have the power to uh, find someone in uh, criminal contempt of court if there is disorderly conduct committed during its session, Hmm. which impairs 
the respect due to the authority. So I guess the question becomes, was it during session when the F-bomb was dropped? Uh, according to what I've read, uh, the parties uh, had a discovery dispute, and apparently uh, Mr. Fahrenkrog disagreed with the judge's ruling, uh, and the judge indicated, well, this is my ruling, and Mr. Fahrenkrog apparently indicated that he pushed the power off button because he was attending the session via his telephone, and instead of powering off, uh, it, uh, or his phone didn't power off, and so he said the, you know, the F word, and at that point the judge heard him. So I guess the question becomes, were they actually in session? The court said, I have made my ruling, and the attorney was leaving the, leaving the Zoom session. So was it in session or not? I guess that is questionable. Uh, I don't think that many attorneys would argue that simply because you are attending via WebEx, because at this point, uh, almost everything that I'm handling is via WebEx. So I don't think there will be many attorneys who will argue that simply because you are attending via WebEx, that you are not in session. That makes sense. Nicole, what if he had been in an in-person meeting and as he's storming out of the courtroom, he had dropped this? Would this be the same set of circumstances here? Well, part of his argument is, no, it wouldn't have been the same set of circumstances. But I want to give my public service announcement for the day, which is to all my colleagues out there, you do not want to be this guy. You do not want to do this. I mean, when I'm mentoring young attorneys, I, you know, the first thing I tell them is you need to be respectful at all times. I mean, you do not want to be in this position. He does not want to be filing this writ, which he did file. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate for everybody in the legal profession that we're even talking about this. I know we're kind of laughing about it, but it, it, it really is an unfortunate situation. And I should add, he apparently apologized profusely. Like he wrote an email to the judge apologizing profusely. I think he too has learned this lesson. Like even if you think you're disconnected, it's not the time for an F-bomb. I think that's right. And I think, you know, that said, there is um, some case law out there that says that if you are going to be held in criminal contempt because you, in essence, pissed off a particular judge, that maybe you should be entitled to a hearing in front of another judge. And I think there is something to be said for that, because I think, you know, maybe this has gone a little too far, Um, but it's debatable. I'm going to say, I think, seven days in jail for saying that uh, under those circumstances is is a little extreme. Um, and my my observation is less of a legal one and more of a psychological one. This guy has been practicing law since 1971. I've never heard his name in connection with anything like this ever before. And I think that, you know, who amongst us hasn't had that thought just lightly flit across our head when we're frustrated by a judge? I think the guy thought that he was off the air, and um, I thought seven days in jail was a lot. And I'm glad it looks like it's resolving without that. Yeah, so the resolution, um, the appeals court had issued a preliminary order in his favor, and then the case ended up in mediation, and Judge Borbonis did vacate this contempt order. Mm-hmm. And it looks like there's not going to be further sanctions. This, is, this matter is basically finished. Connie, it seems like maybe everybody took a big step back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think everybody took a big step back and took a deep breath. I mean, th- I, I think that there were some valid arguments 
arguments that were raised in the writ uh, about procedurally whether or not the judge had crossed all T's and dotted all I's when issuing uh, the uh, order for contempt and order for punishment. Uh, so uh, it is quite possible that it would not have been upheld at the Court of Appeals, and that's probably why everybody took a step back and cooler heads prevailed. But I think it's certainly a cautionary tale, yeah. uh, along with, you know, uh, the recent incident where the attorney ap appeared as a cat filter <laughs> at a hearing. <laughs> but I think this is certainly a cautionary tale for all practitioners that things have certainly changed uh, and you need to be aware uh, when you are appearing virtually. Yep. Uh, we have another high-profile matter to discuss. This involves anti-racism training by the Springfield Public School District. There are two staffers within that district that have filed a lawsuit over this. They say it's mandatory district-wide staff trainings demand that the staffers commit to equity and become anti-racist educators. And they say that if people don't um, sort of affirmatively sign on to some of these things, they don't count as participating, they end up getting pay docked, it causes all sorts of problems for them. They say there's free speech issues here. Now, taking what they say is true, we're kind of assuming that this lawsuit accurately describes what Springfield Public Schools are actually doing. If this is correct, Nicole, do they have a point? Yeah, so one of the things I wanted to say is that this seems to be the issue du jour around the country. These lawsuits are popping up everywhere, um, and I think this is you know, likely to end up in this in the United States Supreme Court. But there is United States Supreme Court precedent for this already. There's a case out of the United States Supreme Court from 2006 called Garcetti versus Cabellos. And basically, uh, the United States Supreme Court said a, uh, that a government employee, uh, when someone enters government service, the citizen by necessity must accept certain limitations on his or her freedom. Hmm. So essentially, you know, when I was a federal prosecutor, there were certain things I couldn't go out and say as a federal prosecutor. And I think um, there's precedent to say that maybe this is not a violation of the First Amendment. And so uh, when I first started thinking about this, you know, intellectually, maybe even politically in my own head, I didn't necessarily think that automatically. But when I when I started researching the legal issues, I think... Um, there's precedent that the school district should win. That's interesting, because I'm coming into this thinking, okay, maybe a private school district would have no problems if they did this because they're, you know, they're not a government actor. They don't have to worry about First Amendment violations. Here's a public school district. But that kind of takes this off the table. Yeah. I mean, the case says a government entity has broader discretion to restrict speech when it acts as in its role as an employer. Hmm. Connie, what's your take on this one? Well, I, you know, I read through the uh, the petition and I thought that it was kind of interesting. I, I agree that it's kind of the hot topic of the day, uh, critical race theory, anti-racism theory being taught uh, in the school district. And I thought the petition was interesting in that uh, the, the individuals didn't allege that their free speech uh, was being uh, prohibited, that they couldn't say things that they wanted to say. They had a very interesting argument that the school district was compelling them to say things that maybe they ordinarily would not have said. 
So I thought it was a very interesting perspective of the individuals who had filed the suit, but I, I do agree with Nicole's analysis. Yeah, that issue of compelled speech, I feel like I've covered free speech issues a lot. This was not one I was familiar with, um, that the government also can't force you to say something in the same way it can't force you not to say something, even though, as you're saying, Nicole, they, they probably have a get out of jail free on this one. Yeah, I think the I think the school district would probably see it differently and the school district would probably say, look, it's training. It's not compelled speech. It's teacher training. And we already, you know, we already do all kinds of different types of teacher training and this isn't any different. So, you know, I think the school district would have a completely different perspective on that issue. There was one other little part of this that I thought was interesting. Once they finally got to the claims after they described all the training, they also argue that it's an unconstitutional condition of employment. This is setting aside the free speech issue. Is this something that you're familiar with, Nicole? I I was not. So, again, I think it goes back to that case where I think the employer, government employer, can put those conditions on employment. I mean, look, we don't allow teachers to teach white supremacy. We don't allow teachers to teach Sharia law. We don't allow teachers to teach that men are superior to women. There are a lot of things that we already restrict in schools. So um, I I think there's precedent for um, this making it through. That said, it's an entirely different United States Supreme Court. So we'll see if this issue comes around again. I guess in order for them to get it, some appellate court would have to to make a decision that they disagree with or that they want to affirm. Do you think this will get that that far? Well, I mean, they are making constitutional claims, so it is certainly a possibility that it could make it that far. Let's talk about another case involving education, although this one is a a bit more peripheral. This has to do with the College of the Ozarks. Uh, They are a Christian school in the Ozarks. Uh, They're suing over a directive from the Biden administration. They say this federal rule, this wasn't like a a bill that Congress signed off on. It's just the rulemaking that federal agencies do. They say it handcuffs them on gender identity. They say, in essence, it would require them to house transgender women in all female dorms. They don't want to do that. They consider gender identity at birth the true gender identity. And so they're saying, if you're forcing us to do this, this strikes at the heart of how we practice our Christianity. Um, They lost on a lower court level. They're asking the Eighth Circuit to get involved. Connie, do you see a religious freedom issue potentially here? Uh, I I do see that there is a potential for a religious freedom issue. I mean, the school is arguing that uh, that the Biden administration, that uh, uh, HUD is uh, forcing them to accept ideology that contradicts what they believe with respect to gender and what they believe with respect to marriage between a man uh, and and a woman. So I think that there are possibly some issues with respect to, you know, a violation of religious freedom. uh, it, I think that uh, that the Court of Appeals, this should be a very interesting case. Uh, HUD and the Biden administration has indicated that this would be a violation of the Fair Housing Act, which prevents discrimination based upon sex. Uh, in the past, the term sex was defined as biological sex, uh, and HUD and the Biden administration has expanded that to include protection for, you know, sexual orientation, uh, as well as individuals who are transgender. So it will be very interesting to see if the courts also go along with that expanded definition uh, of sex. 
Uh, so I think this one has the potential to make it to the Supreme Court. Hmm, Nicole? Yeah, I mean, this is why it's so much fun to read into these cases. I mean, when I first read this, I thought, gosh, this is a religious freedom issue. And then, you know, I think the college is right. And then I started thinking about it a little more. And I started thinking, wait a minute, they get federal funds. This is a condition of the federal funds that they get. And if they want to keep getting their federal funds, then they have to abide by the federal law. If they want to keep their religious freedom, that's fine. Stop taking the federal funds. Whoa, those are fighting words to any they, university. They <laughs> are fighting words, but it's reality, right? And so you ha if you take federal funds, you have to follow Title IX. If you take federal funds, you have to follow all of the rules that come with those federal funds. And so, you know, I don't think the Biden administration got it wrong on this one. Interesting. And it's interesting to think if the roles were reversed. I imagine there's probably a lot more colleges on the other side of things who maybe weren't in step with the Trump administration on everything. Like, you know, would there ever be something that would cause them to say, hey, we're going to say no to these federal funds so that we could truly live out our beliefs. I don't know. I, I can't imagine any university doing that. Uh, I find that very hard to believe, particularly with enrollment being down in many universities. They're not turning away free money. <laughs> I think I did read this university, though, has like the number two endowment in the country, second to Harvard or something like that. They really? had a massive endowment. This, I could, don't quote me on that, but it was a very high endowment. Don't quote me on that, she says As on, on the, the radio. radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me warn our panel, we are, we are officially on the air, but that is very interesting. So it sounds like there's some issues here. They may have some tough choices to make that would certainly unhandcuff them, but even if they don't make those tough choices, Nicole, do you read this the way kind Connie's reading this, that this may be a case that um, a, a appellate court or the Supreme Court may want to take on because this is in line with where they, something they would like to block. I mean, sure, it's a fascinating issue, right? Reasonable minds can disagree. I think certainly it could be an issue for the courts to take up. So I need to bring this back to Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt. <laughs> I know that's exactly where you guys wanted me to go in the final five minutes of our show here. But there's another case involving Eric Schmidt. In this case, he is just defending the state of Missouri. Um, and this is from a lawsuit that was filed by the city of St. Louis and St. Louis County. And this has to do with the state's new gun law. I believe it's called the Second Amendment Preservation Act. This basically says local law enforcement cannot work to enforce federal gun laws. Um, what's new in this case, we're still waiting to see what the circuit court judge is going to do here. But the federal government has weighed in. They say this law is already causing them some really big problems. Um, this was kind of painted as, oh, this is no big deal. These federal law enforcement agencies are saying, hey, we already can't get what we need from Missouri law enforcement to do our job. And that's even though this law doesn't go into effect until Saturday. Uh, Jennifer Joyce, as a former mm -hmm. prosecutor, I imagine you cooperated with federal authorities on all kinds of fronts. All the time. I, and I'm sure Nicole would uh, would bear that out as well. I mean, there's, uh, you know, there's a good working relationship, or there should be. Uh, Any time past 9-11 is when we all woke up and realized, hey, we are much more powerful if we work together, the local and the federal prosecutors and law enforcement. And so I've been involved in many, many task force and initiatives and things of that nature. Uh, designed to combat gun violence. And I just think that this law is incredibly uh, short-sighted. Um, again, it's maybe a cynical view, but it seems to me something that is designed to uh, check a political box 
And it is going to be very devastating to law enforcement, not just in the urban areas, but outstate Missouri state law enforcement. They rely on these federal partners to help them do their job. They're very underfunded, and now they're not going to be able to get anybody to work with them um, from the federal government. And I think it's just going to be devastating. Yeah, just to piggyback on that, I think the listeners should really understand what this means. When we say that there that there are not going to be um, any more federal task forces working with the state of Missouri, that means no more child pornography task forces. That means no more uh, ATF task forces that run ballistics for us. That means no more uh, drug enforcement agency task forces. I mean, this is a massive massively short-sighted decision by the state of Missouri here. And I don't know that people really understand the full consequences of uh, the actions. And I don't think people actually want these consequences. I mean, these federal task forces are out there doing things that our local police forces can't do on their own. And this is a huge loss. You know, something else that was interesting, I saw there's a local police chief who's already quit over this. He says this handcuffs these local guys who are so used to Basically, it says that um, local law enforcement officers or departments can be fined up to $50,000 per officer if they get on the wrong side of this law. I mean, this whole thing, I think when I tell people outside Missouri this is going on, they often seem surprised. They think this might be the onion. But, I mean, (laughs) Connie, it just seems like one of these things that you don't really believe, but it did happen. Yeah, it, it, it certainly did happen, and it's unfortunate that it happened in our state. Uh, luckily, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going through the, working its way through the court system, and, and I certainly believe that, believe that once a judge takes a look at this and sees that this Preservation Act uh, is in, flies in the face of the su- supremacy clause of the Constitution, that this thing is going to get struck down, and hopefully we can get back to working with our federal officers. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. If we have a, a minute... Uh, Going back to Attorney General Schmidt, which is the uh, theme of this uh, hour, um, you know, I mean, I, he's made a lot of statements in the past that he's going to—he's very concerned about violent crime in St. Louis being out of control, and he's going to be tough on crime. And that's been—he—he he himself prosecuted a murder case, like he was fourth chair or whatever. But and this is just 100% opposite of that, supporting this legislation. I cannot marry the two in my mind. That's exactly what I was going to say. If you are a true law enforcement, law and order supporter, this is not the bill for you. So I'm going to leave everybody with a quote. This is from John Sauer, the attorney who filed this case on behalf of Eric Schmidt's office. He said that if this was a bill that had the same fines but was directed towards employment of officers who'd violated the civil rights during a protest, that St. Louis City and County would not have challenged it. Quote, this is a civil right that is just politically disfavored in those jurisdictions. Nicole, in our final 20 seconds here, is he right about that as far as the Second Amendment? It's exactly backwards. And we're going to end on that note. Well, that, <laughs> that was very succinct. Nicole Gorowski of the Gorowski Law, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And Connie McFarland Butler of the Connie McFarland Butler Law Firm in Florissant, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And finally, uh, former St. Louis Circuit Attorney Jennifer Joyce, now with the Vera Causa Group as a consultant, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here.
If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.